It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who know that coronavirus is not caused by Mexican beer. <laughs> Yeah, because then it would fall under the Department of Health and Human Cervezas. <laughs> oh, and we're done. No, <laughs> My name is Karen Ernst. I'm the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, General Pediatrician here at Blank Trims Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And as you may have guessed, we're talking about coronavirus. We have a great interview scheduled with Dr. Angela Rasmussen from Columbia University, where we're going to learn all sorts of great things about coronavirus, or terrible things, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> terrible things, but great. <laughs> That's a little Harry Potter for everybody out there. Be- <laughs> before we turn to our interview let's go ahead and do our around the web i'm actually excited to hear nathan's because i think it's some good news so nathan go all right so i was going to talk about flu uh vaccine interim estimates of uh Effectiveness. So this just came out yesterday that, you know, it's been a rough flu season and it's an interesting flu season. I, I got to listen to a talk from our um, medical director of the Iowa Department of Public Health yesterday, Dr. Caitlin Padati, and she talked about uh, how unusual this flu season has been, that it's been B dominant. B has risen so much earlier in the season, and that's really relatively rare to have a B dominant flu season, she called it. So um, that's one reason why this flu season has been so awful for people, um, in part because just the dynamics of whether or not you've ever caught these B strains before in your past, whether kids have, etc. So it's been a rough year. Um, and, and we're seeing it in the clinic. I'm seeing so much influenza. This is one of the hardest, if not the hardest flu season here anyway, that I've had, uh, since I started practice. Um, and I was kind of wondering how well the flu shot was working. And according to CDC, they do um, an interim estimates and they use, they have a, a series, of, they have what's called the Influenza Vaccine Effectiveness Network. So it's a series of um, sites around the country where they enroll people to get into the program and they'll test per protocol and they can figure out how uh, effective the vaccine has been halfway through the season. Uh, and so, on, according to this data, on 4,112 children and adults um, during uh, from October 23rd to January 25th, the overall estimation of vaccine effective, effectiveness for the overall population is about 45%, which is one of those things where that's actually within the ballpark of what we expect for flu shots. We, we think 40 to 60%, they always say, cuts your rate of getting influenza by about half. So as we always say, you know, that's not measles level effective, but that is still, you know, improving your odds significantly to get your flu shot. And in kids, as is usual, it's a little bit more effective. It's actually more like 55% effective. And scrolling through the data here, if I remember correctly, it was more effective against that B strain than against the A strain. I got to confirm that through all these. Which is here, super weird. Yeah. Yep. And the reason that's super weird is that it, it wasn't a, a 
great match for the B string. Mm-hmm. So the upshot of it is really, you know, even now, you know, we're having this long, I believe in the country right now, we've had an increase in influenza activity for four weeks in a row. Like we're still in the middle of this thing, which is a good argument to be made to if you haven't gotten your flu shot you still can there really is going to be a lot more flu before we see the end of this season so it'll cut you it'll it'll increase your chances significantly of getting through this flu season without catching influenza it will improve your chances of not going in the hospital or worse if you do get influenza um, there's no question in my clinic that the kids that are you know if they got their flu shot they're having a much easier time with flu than if they didn't get their flu shot. So get it done. You know, it's interesting too. The data sort of blows my mind because it did really feel like everyone got the flu Mm -hmm. about starting about the second or third week of January through about until about a week ago. Yeah. I'm still seeing it a lot. I mean, you know, it it could just be my, you know, my immediate community. Sure. <laughs> I'm not I'm not generalizing my experience to the rest of the world. The the interesting thing about it is that I was helping out with my son's school play and we had our very intensive uh what we call heck week where we have to have practices every night and then we have four performances. And so I was around kids constantly for about 10 days. And one by one, I would get texts the next day being like, my kid just got diagnosed with influenza B. And then like three days later, my kid got diagnosed with influenza A. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm coated in germs. And I never got the flu, which there's all sorts of reasons for that. I actually tracked down uh, Dr. LJ Tan, our favorite flu guy, and said, LJ, am I like super immune to the flu and I can never get it? And he looked at me like, no, that's probably <laughs> not true. You know, I feel the same way, though, because I've been I've never had influenza. I get my flu shot every year and I'm exposed to it on an almost daily basis during right now. You know, I'm seeing it all the time and I'm getting up close and swabbing and doing kinds of stuff that might be significant exposures. And I have never gotten it. And I, I do kind of wonder, like, is this the year? This is really bad flu season. Is this the yeah. year where I'm going to have to be like, oh, I caught the flu. But so far, so good. We'll see. There, there is some indication, like some small amount of data that says that the flu vaccine in general has better cross protection with B strains and A strains. Yeah, I think I've um, heard that. I don't have that at my fingertips, but. And this year I went in and I asked for the cell based flu vaccine mm-hmm. because there's also, again, tiny amount of data that says that the cell based vaccine has better cross protection than the, you know, chicken egg hmm. vaccine. Yeah. I mean, Again, I'm talking about an N equals one sample in, you know, my immediate community. So none of this is, (laughs) no one should extrapolate anything from my amount of data. But the CDC's flu data, super interesting, not what I expected at all. Mm -hmm. And just makes me sort of want to say ha to all the people who in December were telling me that the flu vaccine was 9% effective. And I said, you don't know that. No. And then they tried to tell me that they did. And I said, you really don't know that. You won't know anything till February. And I was right. And I'm (laughs) just going to 
say that. Yeah. Well, that was one of those myths that started taking on a life of its own that, you know, somebody just made up out of, it's not exactly whole cloth because what I tried to figure out what it was when this 9% number started circulating and it had to do with one specific strain. I don't remember if it was H3N2 or which one, but one particular strain last season had low efficacy of 9% against one out of the four strains that are in most flu shots. And so some, you know, some group, some anti-vax group or whatever took that, pretended it was gospel truth, started plastering it around, and all of a sudden everybody who's arguing on the internet's like, 9% effective. No, that's not the case. That wasn't the case last year. It's definitely not the case this year. We didn't know anything about effectiveness until yesterday. Really, at least I didn't. <laughs> I actually had a pro-vaccine physician tell me that they could estimate the flu vaccine by looking at sentinel sites. And I'm like, no, you can't. You cannot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe you over people like LJ Tan and Bill yeah. Schaffner. And, you know, nope. So, yeah, that's that's my rant. But it's also very exciting that the flu vaccine is offering us decent protection, right? Mm-hmm. My around the web is actually more like my around my real life. Uh In Minnesota, we had a little vaccine rally at the state capitol, and it was so wonderful. The cool thing is we had a whole bunch of students there. We had moms and dads. We had doctors. We had pharmacists. We had physician assistants. We had nurses. We had pretty much every contingency you can think of. We had speakers from... Children's Hospital, Minnesota. We had a 12-year-old Crohn's uh, patient. We had a HPV cervical cancer survivor. We had the director of the Somali Medical Association of America, and we had a physician assistant speak, and we had three lawmakers speak too. And just, oh, and then we ended with um, Lil Nas Vax singing Vaccine Road. <laughs> You're going to see the lyrics to that. I, I heard the clip online, but now I'm interested. I'm always interested in uh, uh, in v- vaccine musicians. Yeah, he, vaccine musicians are right. like a whole genre, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm into that genre. <laughs> but it was... The cool thing is that it was really energizing. People walked away with huge smiles on their faces. Everyone was pumped up and ready to just sort of go and spread the good word about vaccines. And that was the wonderful thing about it. And I and there is an around the web portion of it. We mm-hmm. had a little hashtag folks can look at if they want to see some of the photos we took at. Ce- it was celebrate iz. Um, so you can go ahead and look at that. And so that was fun. That's what happened in Minnesota to your north. I was super impressed um, mm-hmm. just because, you know, you get certainly pro-vaccine advocates, but to get that many together, I can't imagine how you did that just because although overwhelmingly people uh, support vaccines in, in the same way that people overwhelmingly support seatbelts, you don't really get necessarily that entire population super enthusiastic about seatbelts mm-hmm. or necessarily vaccines. So I am in awe that you, to that you have the, what you were what you guys were able to do up there. That was super impressive. You know, everyone likes to make fun of Karens saying yeah, yeah, they yeah. want to go see the manager mm-hmm. but when people want something done who do they come to <laughs> they come to Karens well, just just you just this Karen <laughs> no there's plenty of Karens <laughs> I will spread it around 
<laughs> I have tried to do my part to reduce Karen-related vaccine you. insults. Um, you really I, I have. allow all other Karen-related humor, but I, when it comes to vaccines, I try to like yeah. tell people to take a step, take a beat, think about yeah. what you're saying about Karen. Right. Yeah, I love I love when like a big page will post something about okay, Karen from the internet, vaccines yep. are bad, blah blah. And then I comment and I say, I'm literally the executive director <laughs> of Voices for Vaccines. I'm right here. <laughs> <laughs> this is me. <laughs> That's fine. All right. So by the way, yep. um, down here in the in the in the in the deep south of Iowa from you. <laughs> uh, um we have started uh, an immunization coalition. It actually started last year. Um, we had been without a formal immunization coalition for a while, and we now have one. So, um, and I want everybody to know about it, especially because we just uh, started up our social media pages. Um, we're, we, we, we're Iowa Immunizes. We are a coalition of uh, both organizations, including the Children's Hospitals, uh, the Iowa Chapter of American Academy of Pediatrics, Iowa Public Health Association, a whole lot of organizations that I'm just not going to be able to um, name, but you can look at them online, um, and also individuals uh, who are coming together as um, parents and professionals and concerned citizens um, to advocate for good immunization policy in our legislature and good immunization information in public uh, to protect Iowans. And everybody do our part to protect everybody else um if you would like to support us and i just mean support us by being a part of our uh community even if you're not an iowan if you are at least somewhat tolerant of iowans and you don't want actual <laughs> harm to come to iowans come to our facebook page uh you just look up iowa immunizes it shouldn't be too hard to find we have a nice little logo with like a ripple effect mm -hmm. in green and orange uh and or go on twitter iowa immunizes on twitter as well uh and i would love to have you follow us and maybe spread some of the stuff that we're gonna um some of the content that we're gonna have on there that would give us uh that would give us a little boost. Thank you. Yep. Remember, Iowa supplies you with your bacon. Mm, yes. And also, I just have to give a little shout out to our friend Elizabeth Faber, who's done such a great yes. job sort of helping you put all of this together. Hi, Elizabeth. You're the best. Now she has to listen to this episode. Yep. All righty. When we come back, we're going to talk to Dr. Angela Rasmussen about coronavirus. We are back with Dr. Angela Rasmussen. Dr. Rasmussen is a virologist at Columbia University and one of the known experts in coronavirus in our country. So welcome, Dr. Rasmussen, to the Fax Talk podcast. Thank you very much. I'm so glad to be here. And we are super excited to have you. Can you tell us what is coronavirus and what is this coronavirus outbreak about? Coronaviruses are a family of viruses uh, we've known about for a long time. Um, they infect various types of animals, including humans. Um, they are RNA viruses, uh, meaning that their genetic material is a molecule that's related to DNA called RNA. Um, and they uh, have been circulating 
uh, in our ecosystem for, for a long time. Um, before the initial SARS coronavirus 1 epidemic in 2003, um, we did know about some other coronaviruses that infected humans. Uh, they usually cause milder common cold-like symptoms. Um, so when SARS emerged, uh, it was it was su surprising and unexpected because we did not realize that coronavirus infections could cause this severe type of disease. And that's actually what SARS stands for. It stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. Uh, and then in about 2012, I think, or 2013, MERS coronavirus emerged, um, and it causes similar symptoms. It, emer it emerged in Saudi Arabia, so MERS stands for Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And now this virus uh, that has emerged now has been, there's a lot of controversy about the name, but uh, it's called SARS coronavirus 2 uh, because it's closely related to SARS. And where is it right now? You know, everyone's talking about the Wuhan province in China, and I know it's spread to a few places, but is it pretty well contained or should we all um, freak out and get ready for the zombie apocalypse? Well, we should not freak out and it won't cause a zombie apocalypse, uh, but it is not contained. Um, it it's em emerged initially in the city of Wuhan, China, with, with 11 million people. Um, and prior to the like province-wide quarantine, that was imposed on Hubei province where Wuhan is, uh, people left Wuhan and traveled to other parts of China, traveled to other places, and as a result, the virus is now fairly widespread. Um, just yesterday, we learned that there are a number of cases in Iran that have probably been um, very underestimated how, how many cases there are. Uh, there are now cases in South Korea and Italy um, but the majority of cases right now are still in China, in Hubei province. Um, that's not to say, though, that, that in the coming weeks we won't see more spread. Uh, but the good news is, and why people shouldn't freak out, is that it does appear that in most people uh, they have fairly mild disease. Um, not to minimize the impact of the 20, roughly 20% or so of people who appear to have more severe disease um, and the, the case fatality rate, which is very hard to estimate, um, but is right now probably around 2 or 3%. Um, but most people who get coronavirus appear to, uh, to, to have relatively mild symptoms like a common cold um, and recover on their own. So as a provider uh, here in the Midwest, um, what is it that we are supposed to be looking for? What do we need to be doing to make sure, you know, given that this is not common, we're probably not going to see this, but yet we want to be aware and be looking out for signs of it. What should we be looking for? What should we be asking as, as uh, pediatricians, as doctors, as providers uh, in our patients? Previously, up until probably last week, you know, I would have said travel history. Um, but now it appears that there is community transmission or secondary transmission occurring within countries that have had um, imported cases from China. Uh, 
unfortunately, so travel history, I don't think is going to remain a, a indicator of somebody's risk level. Um, in the Midwest, probably that's still, <laughs> um, that's still probably a valid question you could ask. But my understanding is that the, the, most of the cases present similar to other respiratory diseases that you would see, um, upper respiratory tract infections. So, uh, common cold like symptoms, um, flu like symptoms. There have been reports of diarrhea and some gastrointestinal issues. So if somebody has, uh, you know, pulmonary problems with breathing, um, you could also find out if they had, you know, a, a GI tract, um, issues and that might be an indicator but honestly i mean for a low risk population i don't know really what the diagnostic criteria would be um to differentiate it from from say flu or a cold um other than doing a test which uh there is a test available now unfortunately that test seems to have a fairly high incidence of false negatives um, which is also a problem. So we asked you here um, to talk about this. We're, of course, a vaccine podcast, but there is no vaccine for coronavirus, correct? Correct. However, I know that we've had work done on coronavirus vaccines in the past, and I just can't track down the status of those. Do you know how that work has gone forth and what the status of those vaccines has been and what that means for this coronavirus outbreak? Yeah, so that it's kind of tricky because, you know, SARS and MERS, SARS was relatively um, contained uh, and SARS just hasn't reappeared. Um, SARS coronavirus one, original SARS. Um, MERS coronavirus appears uh, there are outbreaks of it every year. Um, it is thought to be transmitted primarily through an intermediate host species, the dromedary camel. Um, but it's not frequent enough that a lot of the vaccines that were developed have progressed past, you know, sort of a, a preclinical stage. Um, the trouble, some of these vaccine strategies could certainly be adapted uh, to be used for this virus. And I know multiple groups are working on uh, SARS coronavirus 2 vaccine. Um, but the, the issue has always been with the prior vaccines, how are you going to test it in clinical trials and how are you going to get somebody, uh, a company, to fund um, all of that work to get it approved when the incidence is not high and for SARS was non-existent after about 2004, I think. So um, that, that really is the problem. In this case, we hadn't seen this virus ever um, other than a related virus that was found in bats in 2017. So we, you know, we just found out the sequence of this virus in January. So the vaccines are, are pretty much starting from scratch. Um, even if they're adapting a previously used strategy, um, it's just going to take a lot of time to, to develop those vaccines, test them, uh, and animals, and then get them into clinical trials so that they can be available to the public, and then manufacture them um, at a scale that would be useful in terms of protecting, at this point, a global population from this virus. So on that topic of 
vaccine and vaccine trials, one of the conspiracy theories that's been floated by the anti-vaccine side is that the coronavirus is patented and therefore manufactured either just as some sort of malicious plot against people or alternately as a way to sell a new coronavirus vaccine. So I've heard (laughs) these theories. Yes. Now we're going to go ahead and just say we know those aren't true, but can you sort of walk us through why those are patently ridiculous theories? These are these kind of go hand in hand with um, the coronavirus is a biological weapon theory um, that was you know engineered. Um, in terms of the biological weapon theory, it's ridiculous because it would make a terrible biological weapon. Um, it it doesn't uh, it doesn't cause that much disease um, in the majority of people who get it. But we have genetic evidence that suggests why it's neither a, a vaccine. Um, some plot to enhance vaccines. Um, I've also seen the theory that it's a vaccine that went wrong and like escaped from the lab. Uh, we can, yeah. It... <laughs> I saw that movie. That was good. <laughs> was that I Am Legend? I think. I f- I feel like one of the Mission Impossible movies had a like a vaccine gone wrong plot to it. Maybe Mission Impossible Two something like that have to go back and check that i i enjoy watching ridiculous movies like that um but anyways uh the the reason that we know that it's none of those things or we at least there's a high probability that it's none of those things uh and it's a naturally emergent virus um are are based on the genetic data and genomic analyses that have been done um largely by christian anderson at Scripps and Andrew Rambau to study the genomes of viruses and understand how closely related they are to one another. Um, what we know from looking at the genome of this virus, SARS coronavirus 2, is that it's very similar to a virus uh, that was found in a cave um, not close to Hubei province in Yunnan, uh, China. They found this virus in a bat, and uh, it, it was similar in the same family as a number of other bat coronaviruses. And when they looked at the, that virus and compared it to the SARS coronavirus that is capable of infecting humans, the changes between those two viruses suggest that it evolved naturally um, to infect humans. What we don't know is that whether it infected uh, another intermediate host in between the bats and the humans, or if people got it directly from the bats. But um, the nature of those genetic changes that allowed the virus to adapt to to infect humans efficiently and be transmitted from person to person um, are suggestive of a natural infection or a natural evolution of the virus, not um, uh, engineered virus. So we kind of heard about some of the conspiracy theories that are out there. What other myths have you heard about regarding coronavirus that you feel like need to be kind of put to rest? Um, there has been a enormous amount of racism and xenophobia, and some of that has been scientific. So uh, people latched on to the fact that um, the receptor for 
SARS coronavirus, actually both SARS coronaviruses, um, is a molecule called ACE2, and it's a it's a protein um, that's expressed uh, in everybody throughout the respiratory tract. Um, but you know, proteins are encoded by genes, and genes can have different versions of those genes. Um, the the alleles that are specific to, or that are more commonly found in people of East Asian heritage are different, um, but there's no evidence whatsoever that suggests that people of East Asian descent um, are more likely to become infected or more likely to transmit the virus than to people who have alleles of ACE2 that are associated with uh, Europe or North America, for example. Um, so I, I, I am sometimes speechless by some of these theories that are intending to prove that there's some sort of racial basis um, or national basis for, uh, for susceptibility. And it's really unfortunate that, I mean, I don't think that particular theory was used to, to develop things like the travel ban. But those policies that are really rooted in a, a misunderstanding of who's susceptible to a virus or not can cause incredible damage. Um, there's no reason why foreign nationals should not be allowed who, into the United States from China when American citizens are, because a virus does not care what passport you're carrying. Um, and it's, it's ineffective from a public health perspective. And it is harmful, uh, not only because it actually increases our risk of exposure, but also um, causes all the harms that, that racism and xenophobia are associated with. So your discussion about racism and xenophobia is, you know, extremely on point. And I just want to mention that I saw a video on Facebook that uh, a young man, an Asian American, was refused a hotel room because he looked Chinese. And so that's certainly something that I think all of us should speak out against, that we, of course, know that viruses really don't care what our heritage and background are. The question I have related to that is that SARS-1 started in the in South A Southeast Asia, MERS was a Middle Eastern virus, and now SARS-2, the return of SARS, is in, started in Wuhan province in China. Is it something about climate or something about the uh, population density, or what is it that has those viruses getting their start there and spreading from sort of that you know, South, Southeast Asia to the Middle Eastern portion of the world. Yeah, so um, SARS coronavirus one, I guess it's sort of Southeast Asia, but it also emerged in, in East Asia, I would say. I mean, it, it, Hong Kong is, you know, there, there are problems now with, with SARS-2 in Hong Kong um, as well, but um, I think it matters less uh, about temperature or climate um, and it matters more whether the animal that um, is the zoonotic transmission uh, occurs from, whether that animal is present. Um, the, so we know that there are bat coronaviruses in many places all over the world. Um, there are coronaviruses in other species as well. 
Um, any of them can emerge, but in this case, what we don't know is if there is an intermediate, intermediate species and what that species would be. Um, it, we know that in the first SARS coronavirus epidemic, although the virus originally, again, came from bats, um, it, it was amplified or it, it adapted to, to infect humans um, in, a, in an animal called a civet. And people were exposed to that, I think, maybe in markets. Um, but that, that was how uh, SARS-1 uh, emerged. Um, in MERS, as I said, there are uh, sporadic outbreaks that occur um, based on zoonotic transmission primarily because MERS is actually not that transmissible from person to person. Uh, and that is through exposure to dromedary camels who are infected with MERS. Um, in this case, it could be directly from the bats. It might not be. It might be from another intermediate species. Um, but uh, the risk of future outbreaks of this virus will really depend on us understanding where those intermediate species are and um, trying to, to manage ex potential exposure. Um, we may also never determine where <laughs> what the intermediate species is or if there is one. Um, people have suggested that uh, pangolins may be um, the intermediate species, but we still have not, and pangolins do have similar coronaviruses, but they're not as similar as the bat coronavirus. Um, so we just don't know that. I know that, that President Trump said uh, that we have nothing to worry about in April because of the heat. Um, and I don't think that that's true. First of all, you know, MERS coronavirus emerged in Saudi Arabia, which is known for its heat. Um, I don't think that we can make assumptions that uh, because there may be seasonality um, to coronaviruses circulating, that it's because of the ambient temperature. And people have done studies also that shows that temperature and humidity are important in terms of the virus remaining infectious on, say, surfaces, um, which is, is a way for viruses to be transmitted. But for viruses to be maintained in terms of their ecology, they need to be infecting a host. So really, the, the intermediate host or the bats are going to be the biggest determinant, I think, of future outbreaks. Um, but it's, you know, it's that's a low priority considering that right now the current epidemic, which probably will soon be called a pandemic, uh, is is not contained. So that's the priority. Getting back a little bit to trying to relate it to vaccines somewhat, one of the messages that I've seen come around and kind of go viral or get shared is this message of like, don't worry about coronavirus, worry about influenza. And I have kind of mixed feelings about that because on the one hand, I think the people that are worried about coronavirus but not getting their flu shots are not really assessing their actual risks to themselves in the United States anyway. But on the other hand, I really don't like to minimize all the effort and the work that goes into controlling and monitoring a disease that has, especially one like this, that has such a higher mortality rate than influenza. So what what's your take on that? That kind of message. I, I share some of the the mixed feelings that you have because right now um, influenza is certainly a bigger risk. 
Um, and as you point out, it is a vaccine-preventable disease. I mean, last night I was at a friend's birthday party, and um, she confessed that she had not gotten flu shots for her and her daughter this year because they just forgot. And I said, you know, it's not too late. Like, you can still go get a flu shot. Um, and I think that's an important message that I always try to to get out there is that it's, you know, imp if you can get vaccinated against something, then you should, um, and especially influenza. But I, I agree that it's, and I've had a lot of people on Twitter sort of engaging in, I, I think there was an article that called it scientific whataboutism, um, and people complaining that, you know, oh, this is going to be so much worse um, than the flu because seasonal flu has a, you know, lo much lower case fatality rate, um, whereas this is, you know, 2 to 3%. If that infects the whole world, then how many millions of people are going to die? Um, and I, I think it, it is important to recognize the seriousness of the situation, uh, but that doesn't mean that influenza is not still a public health issue. Um, and certainly in influenza pandemics, um, such as the 1918 pandemic, for example, uh, it's hard to estimate the case fatality rate for that one, but for the 2009 pandemic, uh, H1N1 pandemic, that was in a lot of people pretty mild. I mean, I've seen various case fatality rate estimates that are as much as like five, five or six percent. So that's higher. Um, so it really depends on which kind of flu, but it, it's a great point that we shouldn't be talking about viruses, even that even ones that cause similar disease, always in rel you know relative to each other. Um, we should be assessing the risk for each virus individually. Um, right now, the reason I would tell people to get a flu shot is that certainly flu is a much bigger risk in the United States. Uh, that could change, though. I'll still tell people to get flu shots, but uh, I, I always try to help people understand what like their risk level is. Um, it's certainly higher than it was, for example, in 2015 when people were asking me all the time if they were going to get Ebola, hmm. and Ebola was going to become a pandemic. Um, that risk was <laughs> negligible, I thought. Same with MERS coronavirus, which doesn't, again, transmit uh, very efficiently between people. Um, if you are not in the Middle East hanging around camels, uh, you're probably not going to get MERS. Your risk of flu is much higher. With this one, it's really hard to say because the, the numbers are changing all the time and there have been so many public health failures, frankly, including you know patients who were flown with uninfected patients back to the U.S. after being quarantined on that cruise ship in Japan. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really hard to estimate the risk, but that's why we shouldn't be definitively comparing it to something like flu, seasonal influenza, which we know the risks for. We know the risks and we know that getting a flu shot is our best chance at preventing flu. Uh, so my question for you is about vaccines again and emergent viruses. And what could we as a country, as citizens of our country who can lobby our government, as, you know, global health and world health or public health people, what can we do to better respond as far as being prepared to create vaccines for viruses that emerge that we don't know are going to emerge? 
So that really is a, a much larger issue. I would argue that we are completely unprepared, not just in terms of vaccines, but in terms of basic responses to emerging infections. Um, this particular presidential administration has gutted all of our already insufficient bio-preparedness um, sort of initiatives and parts of the government that would handle that sort of thing. Um, specifically with regard to vaccines, I think Ebola is a great example of this. So about probably more than 10 years ago, um, in Canada, uh, they developed um, uh, an Ebola vaccine that is incredibly effective. It, it causes actually sterilizing immunity. When I look at the host response to viral infection, and we've looked at rhesus macaques that have been vaccinated with uh, the, the VSV Ebola vaccine, um, and then you challenge them with Ebola virus, you actually can't see a host response because they, they don't get infected. Um, the immunity is, is very protective. Um, and so that virus, you know, was try, tried out in mice, non-human primates. Uh, there was plenty of data showing that it would work, but because prior to 2014, there was not a, a need for Ebola, and Ebola is already incredibly overfunded um, relative to its incidence, even after West Africa. Um, but West Africa happened, and you know, 28,000 people got Ebola, um, and, and everybody said, well, where's this vaccine? Like, we developed this vaccine, but the fact is it wasn't profitable. It wasn't a governmental priority to fund actual clinical development of that vaccine. And that vaccine was eventually like rapidly put into trials uh, in Guinea and Sierra Leone and Liberia um, towards the end of the Ebola epidemic. And it's been used as well in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, and it's, again, it's very effective. Um, but it, it could have been available years before West Africa even happened. And, you know, 11,000 people died in that Ebola epidemic. It was the largest Ebola outbreak in history, epidemic in history. Um, it it seems to me that we are really doing ourselves a disservice by not funding more of this type of work that would allow us to rapidly respond in terms of both vaccines as well as antiviral therapeutics. So th there's one thing that that um, and I don't I just don't know if it's like on topic for for a vaccine podcast, uh -huh. but one thing that's really unusual about this outbreak um, and sort of unprecedented is the speed at which information's coming out. And I think that is fueling um, a lot of the, the conspiracy theories and, and, uh, and, you know, people are getting access to, to preprints, which are a relatively new thing. A preprint is a scientific manuscript that is put onto a public server so that people can look at it before it's gone through peer review. Um, so preprints are really helpful when they're good, <laughs> but some of them in this case have been extraordinarily bad. Um, for example, uh, there was one preprint that did an incredibly flawed analysis that determined that the probable host was a snake. Um, there are no, coronaviruses infect a lot of different animals, but they are not known to infect snakes at all. Um, and it was pointed out the next day that, you know, the snake theory is ridiculous. Um, another paper that was 
incredibly controversial and was immediately latched onto by a lot of the bioweapon conspiracy theorists is um, the a group did an analysis using BLAST, which is a search alignment tool where you can take a, a genetic sequence and compare it to other known genetic sequences and see what it's similar to. They took a very small uh, sequence, um, and the, the smaller the sequence, the more likely it is going to randomly match with a whole bunch of things. They took a small portion of the sequence and found that it matched a sequence that's in HIV. And so, I mean, if this coronavirus would make a terrible bioweapon, I can, HIV would make an even worse bioweapon. Yeah, right. um, and it, it, it turns out, you know, if you blast search the sequence that they looked at, you find hits from everything from like plants to bacteria to random animals um, and to parts of the human genome. So it definitely was not HIV, but immediately, because that was out on a preprint server, people picked it up and ran with it and starting to say that, you know, coronavirus is actually an HIV hybrid to make it more deadly and da-da-da-da-da, which is, it's just ridiculous. And even though that gets debunked pretty quickly, uh, it, it does fuel a lot of these things. Similarly, um, an uh, anti-vaxxer named James uh, Lyon, Lyons Wiley. Yep. He um, did an analysis, another fun blast analysis, in which he identified part of a plasmid. Um, and a plasmid is a, a DNA vector that's used to express genes uh, in the lab. He found sequences from a plasmid vector called P-shuttle, but what and and claimed that they were so similar to the spike protein, which is the the protein on the surface of the virus that binds the receptor ACE two, and claimed that this this confirms that that you know it's an engineered virus and a biological weapon, and it was probably a vaccine gone wrong is actually what he's arguing. But he neglects to mention that a the match wasn't very close. Uh, there were a lot of gaps in the alignment, which suggests that it's not related. And he also neglected to mention that that vaccine or that vector was used to express the SARS coronavirus one spike protein. So it makes sense that there would be homology or or shared genetic um, sequences between SARS coronavirus two and SARS coronavirus one, and those are the sequences that matched up. So it's not that that. There, this was engineered, it's that this virus is related to SARS, um, to original SARS. So stuff like that um, coming out, uh, and that came out on his blog, fortunately not on a preprint server, but stuff like that, I mean, it to me, it's obvious that he's the type of person who's going to try to find some some sort of bad vaccine thing. Um, mm -hmm. he's, he's a conclusion in search of a of data and a hypothesis. Definitely, um, he's, he, his analysis was very misleading, and he had a whole, like, oh, it was, like, mind-numbing to read it, like, uh, argument about forming hypotheses and why, basically, his cherry-picking was scientifically valid. Um, but I think that the, the availability of information very quickly is great, 
but it also has a downside. And, and that's one example of that. Yeah, it's almost like anti-vaxxers will twist anything into making vaccines the bad guy. That's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I just want to finish up with um, a fun question that I sometimes use to end our podcast. And that is, what's your favorite vaccine? Oh, um, that's a good question. You know, I'm... I, I did my PhD in Vincent Rockinello's lab uh, at Columbia, and he's um, a old school polio guy. Um, so I'd have to say polio. Um, it's it, it's amazing to me that the you know I, I'm reading history books about what it was like when polio was epidemic um, is just so interesting to me. And my parents were the age where they were part of the children that um, were initially given the polio vaccine. And so um, just hearing stories about, um, you know, asking my mom if she got a shot or a sugar cube, uh, it was very interesting. And there's there's a lot of um, difficult ethical issues to unpack about that vaccine. So, I mean, obviously I'm glad I've never gotten polio. Yeah. Um, obviously it's critical that we eradicate polio. Mm-hmm. Um but I, w- I wouldn't say it's my favorite vaccine. It's my favorite vaccine stories. It's, a, it's just mm-hmm. a, a source of endless fascination for me, as well as scientifically, because now we're knowing, now we've learned that um, in some places, the oral uh, Sabin polio vaccine, which is a live attenuated vaccine, doesn't work in some patients who have chronic gastrointestinal bacterial infections. Um, and people will have to be vaccinated over and over again when... Like for me, you know, I have polio immunity for life because I, I'm old enough that I, I got the oral um, right. sugar cube vaccine when I was mm-hmm. two. Me too. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, um, it's just a really interesting vaccine. But I think, you know, in terms of vaccines that have made a big difference, um, you know, I wish I was young enough to have gotten the chicken pox vaccine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, I got it the old-fashioned way, so I guess I'll have to get a shingles vaccine when I get older. But, um, I mean, I I'm a big fan of vaccines in general, obviously. Yeah, they're they're great. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us at the Vax Talk podcast. Of course, I'm I'm so happy to be here, and I really enjoyed talking with you guys. Yes, we like talking to you too. And thank you to everyone at home who is listening for joining us as well. My name is Karen Ernst, and I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, General Pediatrician here at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And I think that's it. That's it. Take care.